Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.125%. APR, 4.22%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. 8.88% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 33. Welcome to the Masogi Method with work happiness expert Jody B. Miller. Each week, Jody interviews amazing people who have broken through huge barriers to achieve meaning, success, and happiness in their lives. For each of us, the path to lasting happiness has always been there, but it may take a Masogi to get you on it. Here's your host, Jody B. Miller. Welcome to the Masogi Method, breaking through barriers to achieve meaning, success, and happiness that lasts. I'm your host, Jody B. Miller. As many of you know, the ultimate goal of this podcast is to inspire you to move outside your comfort zone as a way of getting away from boredom, stress, the daily grind that often grinds us down, and toward a life that is full and filled with happiness. And when you're not in that happiness mindset, or maybe you need a jolt of happiness, this podcast brings you inspiring people and their stories, people who have broken through barriers or have discovered new ways of achieving happiness in their personal and their professional lives. Really amazing people who can offer you, the listener, advice, tools, and strategies that can help you get back on your own happy track. Our guest today is one of those people. Emiliana Simon-Thomas is a PhD and the science director of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley in California. She and her team approach happiness in a way that gives us a deeper, more scientific understanding of happiness and how to achieve it in our lives and in the workplace. Emiliana, welcome to the Masogi Method. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Jody. What a treat. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you again. I haven't seen you since Prague. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a few, few months ago now, wasn't it? <laughs> I know, and you're still traveling a lot. So I, I'm going to ask you, start with some pretty simple questions so our listeners can really understand what you do um, and then sort of how you got into it. But it, as, at a very basic level, what is a happiness scientist? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a happiness scientist is someone who tries to understand using rigorous empirical methods what factors in ourselves, in our lives, in our experiences uh, really meaningfully and systematically contribute to being a happy person. Um, we use lots of different methods from surveying, which is probably the most familiar one. You answer a few questions about how you're doing or how you tend to feel or how you tend to interact with others. We measure people's brains while they're having certain kinds of experiences. We may put someone into what's called an fMRI scanner and then invite them to play a game or um, perform a task that really is known to solicit regions or systems or circuits in the brain that are involved in the experiences that happy people tend to have. We may put sensors on the body and measure changes in heart rate or perhaps gather saliva samples and look at uh, activation in the neuroendocrine system. Um, we may just uh, observe day-to-day uh, -day sort of utterances, verbal expressions, and, and examine how people's uh, style of, of speech tends to predict or uh, influence their, how they score on a, on a measure of happiness. So, so we use a lot of different methods to try to understand what it takes to be a, a, a truly happy person. Oh, my goodness. And so many people just think it's just a, an emotion or a feeling. Yeah, well, uh, that's one of the very first clarifications I typically offer when I teach about human happiness, which is there is something meaningful, distinct, meaningfully distinct between what what we would call an emotion, and an emotion would be a pretty brief, uh, largely uh, reflexive response to a particular circumstance. Um, uh, an example of a positive emotion might be amusement or uh, pride, or um, 
a collective joy, uh, which is the feeling you might have when your your team uh, is is victorious, and I'm I'm sure many people are feeling that, and and maybe the opposite of that in, in the context of the World Cup uh, events that yes. are happening right now. Um, <laughs> but those these momentary experiences are specific to a context. They come and then they resolve, and that is absolutely not the same thing as being a happy person. Being a happy person is a more general characteristic of, of life. It's a quality of a person. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're continuously experiencing these positive states that I just uh, gave a few examples of. Instead, it means that you're pretty versatile in uh, embracing the variety of different emotions that humans are designed to feel. So very happy people are comfortable with moments of anger. Um, we were meant to experience anger when we uh, face injustice, and that experience of anger motivates us to respond to correct the circumstances that are leading to that injustice. We would never want to aspire to happiness in a way that silences those emotions that direct us in very functional ways. We could have a similar story for sadness. We could have a similar story for fear. These emotions, which people typically call negative, are very important. They play a very important role in the life of a happy person. And so again, happiness is not about trying to maximize pleasure and accumulate the, uh, and protect as many resources as you possibly can. But it's, it's, it's more about having a rich and dynamic emotional life, being pretty good at experiencing the positive states when good things are happening, being able to embrace the difficult moments but recover from them relatively gracefully. And then there's a huge, huge role that our social connections, that our sense of support and benevolence with others in our community play in our capacity to fall into that category of very happy people. I think it's really inspiring um, to hear from a scientific viewpoint that it's okay to feel these other emotions. It's almost like you made me think of a ladder. So if I'm in sadness and I, and I can be aware uh, that I'm in sadness and actually feel that sadness, I can maybe get to the next rung of maybe being deeper as to why that sadness is happening and then maybe finding some relief. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, that's a wonderful metaphor. Um, you're absolutely right that a big part of being having a healthy relationship with those more difficult moments in life is awareness, right? Knowing, oh, I'm having this feeling. Um, it is uh, most <laughs> familiar to other circumstances, perhaps, where I've had an irrevocable loss, and and that is sadness. And and what what is sadness for? Well, uh, you know, for, for many years, thinkers like Charles Darwin and uh, William James have been trying to understand uh, the point of, of different emotions. And, and sadness is really about expressing yourself in a manner that solicits social support, that, that allows you to feel supported and um, hopeful in those moments when inevitably we're all going to experience loss in, in, in our lives. So, so we, we make this characteristic facial and uh, sort of the postural expression that is actually deeply um, attractive to other people, not in attractive in the sense that we might typically think of it, but attractive in the sense that when you see someone who is particularly vulnerable looking, who is crying, no matter who they are as a human, you feel uh, drawn towards that person. Your impulse is to approach them, perhaps put an arm on their shoulder, uh, perhaps uh, utter some supportive phrases to them, whatever your capacity is to actually, you know, change the situation or, or correct the scenario that is, that is causing their sadness. A lot of the times there's, there's nothing a person can do other than just be that supportive presence. And that actually is exactly what the sadness expression is for. It's for soliciting that support from others when we are experiencing a deep and profound loss. And that support is the very thing that, as you might have meant, uh, have, have suggested, uh, that, that brings us back up the ladder. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're meant to connect as humans, right? And we've, we've told stories and connected with 
our communities or our tribes since the beginning of time. And it seems like if someone's looking to get another rung on that ladder or get out of that emotion or live through and make their way through that not as positive of an emotion, then that, then surrounding themselves with support and others is probably a quicker way to get up that next rung. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Humans are ultra social. Like our bodies were have evolved in a way that drives us towards cooperation, towards coordinating our efforts to achieve a, a greater um, sum of 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 productivity. Uh, we're unlike other creatures and organisms that are solitary. Uh, there, there certainly are uh, organisms that, that survive that way, whose evolutionary trajectory has been about maximizing their adaptiveness through a very independent and individual uh, sort of style of, of, of life. But that is not humans. Humans are ultra social. We're relatively soft, we're relatively weak, <laughs> but we're super, super intelligent in a particular way that makes us really good at cooperating. Our uh, higher order executive systems are in many ways designed to serve our cooperative and affiliative uh, and benevolent behaviors. I love that, and I'd love to explore that more when we get into the workplace. But I have a—I wanted to go back to some of your measurements. You—you you named all these different ways that you measure happiness, and whether it's through a survey, or whether it's through a scanner, or whether it's through, um, you know, different changes in the chemical balance of someone. Um, you know, a lot of people say it's a—you know—happiness is a mood or an emotion or a feeling. But I, I mean, really, there's a biological connection. Yeah, absolutely. The, well, let, let's be a little bit careful about that because um, an emotion certainly has a biological profile to it. So if you feel um, amusement, right, there are going to be certain changes throughout your peripheral physiology, meaning everything kind of below the neck, and there'll be changes in your brain chemistry. And of course, your expression, right? Your, the, the laughter expression is one that's highly recognizable and communicates a very specific signal to others around you. And, um, and your mental state in that moment is, is, is particular and unique to that experience of amusement. Um, while that is a, a kind of cog in the wheel of being a happy person, being a happy person is more related to chronic or systemic um, qualities of a person's biology. So uh, what we do know, for example, from the clinical psychology research is that, you know, certain, um, uh, <laughs> as, uh, how should I put it, there certain ways of, of manufacturing and utilizing uh, neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin are involved in how easy it is for a person to experience uh, enjoyment in a particular moment or to, to feel amused, to, to have that state of perhaps might, what you might call contentment or ease. Um, oftentimes we talk only in the language of stress and anxiety and, and uh, despair when in fact uh, it's, it's, it's often useful to, to, to use words that are kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, not just the lack thereof. So right. if you're somebody who uh, experiences ease quite a lot of the time, you're probably somebody who has a particular genetic profile that makes your nervous system uh, have an easier time manufacturing and utilizing serotonin. Um, I, I don't usually like to sort of isolate one substance to one feeling um, okay. because most of the brain works in highly parallel and complex interactive ways. But um, I do think it's fair knowing what we know about the kinds of medications that we offer to people who very chronically don't feel ease and contentment in life, uh, serotonin plays an important role in that. So there are these kind of broader biological kind of biases or affordances that might make one person have an easier time falling into that category of very happy versus less happy. But 
it's far from the entire explanation. Oftentimes people think of, well, I'm only happy because this is kind of how I came into the world. I was born this way. Or they think I'm only happy or unhappy because of my upbringing, my lived experience. You know, I was the middle child. I didn't get enough attention or I was uh, very impoverished and my life was very stressful. So thus I'm, I'm, I'll never be able to be happy. But uh, more kind of thorough analyses of these different sort of facets that can contribute to the likelihood of being a very happy person. And this is work done by Sonia Lubomirsky at UC Riverside, um, shows that uh, it, the, the, the genetic kind of biological explanation really only explains about half of the variance between one person and, and the next. The live life experience uh, facet only explains about 10% of the variance between one person and the next. So there's this big kind of 40%, approximate 40% of the explanation for why perhaps you and I score differently on a measure of happiness that has to do with our daily experiences. So what are we doing today? What are we doing in this minute? What are we so, doing so, an hour from now? Right. So it's not looking at the past or living in the past or trying to um, dissect the past. Um, although that sounds like it's a 10% contributing factor to whether yep. you're going to feel a little happier. That's really interesting. I always thought it was sort of even nature versus nurture. Um, ultimately, it, sounds, it is because your past experience plus what you're doing right now is roughly 50%, right? And then biology is roughly 50%. So you're absolutely right about that. It's just that the, the, the what you're calling nurture piece is broken up. Uh, perhaps in an unexpected way. I think a lot of people attribute their happiness much more strongly to the, uh, the, the, the history, like the lived experience, the, the who I am and what's happened to me in the past and, 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 and don't appreciate how much opportunity there is for them right now, today, in each moment to behave and, and interact and prioritize their experiences in ways that really will contribute in measurable and meaningful ways to their capacity for, for happiness as a human. I, I think that gives a lot of hope to people who go to therapy and try and, like I said before, dissect their past and figure out why this happened or why they're the middle child or whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever their issue is, right? But you really can't, something I always think is like, I, I can't control what happened in the past, right? It's done. Yeah. Right? You can try to understand it. Um, but I think that 40% you're talking about on, on, the, on the nurture side, that's exciting. Like you, yeah. have a, you have a lot of control over where you're going. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And even how you think about and uh, the narrative you have around your past, which is shaping your present experience, uh, is, a, is an op a space of opportunity. So, uh, for example, James Pennebaker has written for quite, quite a few years about how valuable it is to um, in, engage in a, a writing exercise about previous prior experiences that is um, framed through a lens of self-compassion. So if something, you know, really regrettable has happened to you or something does feel like it's kind of continuously interrupting your capacity to, to feel happy moment to moment, um, you know, there's, there's promise in, in writing about that experience in a, in a kind of self-nurturing way and really giving yourself the same kind of affection and support that you might give someone else who, uh, who, who comes to you and says, I'm feeling really badly about this thing that happened to me. Um, we, we have a lot of, of, of opportunity to shift our, the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about our lives uh, right now that can, again, uh, kind of move the needle towards more happiness. I love that. I love that message of really sort of paying attention to you and taking care of yourself so often, especially, you know, I don't want to be stereotypical, but as mothers and, and women, right, uh, mm -hmm. we're very nurturing and we always put ourselves last. And, and I think for a lot of mothers that listen to this program, they can know basically by what you're saying and the science that supports it and the studies that it's okay to take care of yourself and be nice to yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's not only okay, it's, it's actually essential. Um, there, there's very little to be gained from the hypercritical inward facing voice that many of us uh, as whatever position we are in life as mothers, as parents, as 
um, as, as firefighters, as correctional officers, whatever we are, uh, particularly um, American individualistic kind of competitive culture uh, seems to build in early on this notion of self-criticism that, that we can, we, we, will, we will be most successful if we in, regularly speak inward towards ourselves in a voice that is very punishing and critical. Um, yeah, I, I just and, don't get that. I don't like that. <laughs> well, yeah, none of us do, yet we don't really know that it's happened a lot of the time. A lot of people are quite unaware of how self-critical they are. Um, I also just want to make sure that we don't make the mistake of conveying this, like that, that self-compassion means being kind of indulgent or... Um, uh, having a, a double chocolate ice cream <laughs> Sunday instead of going to your Zumba class because uh, part of self-compassion is really clearly re uh, reflecting on what what makes you what does make you happy and while that that ice cream treat might be a really fun temporary experience uh, going to your Zumba class where you have a social community where you're getting exercise where you're hearing music that is sort of uh, joyful and, and uh, arousing in a particular way um, those are going to have much more sustainable contributions to to your experience of happiness so so knowing a little bit about what really does make you happy and then prioritizing your experiences in a way that feeds into happiness um, is, is an important part of self-compassion alongside that kind of quieting the inner critic and replacing it with just, a, again, especially as a mother, because we, we're often faced with, uh, with, with kind of injury and complaint and sadness and Definitely. being like, you know, suck it up, you know, be quiet. You're, you're a loser. Like we'd never say that to, to, no. to and, and we also shouldn't say that to ourselves. No, and, and it's still okay to have a little chocolate now and then. Of course. Oh, <laughs> trust me. It's actually more than okay. <laughs> Assuming you like chocolate. I mean, treats exactly. are fine. I don't mean to go out against treats. I just <laughs> Sometimes people hear self-compassion and they think, oh, that's just some excuse to like, you know, not be responsible. It's yeah, actually and, not that at all. And aren't a lot of those short-lived anyway? It's almost like I'm going to go buy this beautiful new car and you're all excited you buy it, but pretty soon it's just a car. Yeah, well, that's great, uh, a great example. And Tom Gilovich at Cornell has been publishing study after study, highlighting how much less you get out of material purchases than you get out of investing in experiences. Elizabeth Dunn uh, has also published on this same topic. And basically, like, if you've got, you know, the, the, delightful um, opportunity to spend some of, uh, of what you have on something, you're going to get a lot more out of, uh, of it in terms of your well-being and your happiness if you invest in an experience, something that's shared with other people, something that kind of stays in your memory for the long haul, something that doesn't at some point become another obligation that you have to keep track of, like your new car that somebody sideswipes and, and doesn't leave their insurance information. And, and that's, again, now it's suddenly a big source of stress and frustration rather than, you know, the wonderful hike that you went on and perhaps didn't have to pay a lot for with a close friend or family member. And, you know, you had a deep and meaningful conversation. And again, you had this sort of awe-inspiring outdoor experience that that shapes your your experience your your men, your mental state in, in a different way. So yeah, absolutely, you're right about that. Yeah, I find that as I get older and my kids kind of leave the house, just as a mom, that that I am more focused on experiences because yeah. you've been through all the stuff. Yeah. So, so maybe sometimes you have to go through it to know or to get there. But um, I, I agree with you. Those hikes are very are fun or, you know, trying surfing for the first time or, or whatever it is that that's interesting to you. I love that. And I think our listeners will grab onto that too, but I got way ahead of myself, Emiliana. I wanted to find out initially. So if you don't mind, I'm going to go backwards a little bit. What got you into this field in the first place? Yeah, well, so there's a, a long and a, and a brief version of, of my answer to that. So I'll give you the brief one because I suspect we don't have unlimited time. Um, I was always really interested in human mental life. I was raised in Berkeley, California. My parents both kind of 
moved away from their more uh, traditional Catholic upbringings in the Midwest and came to California, um, sort of uh, tied themselves to a Buddhist philosophical outlook and um, uh, were, were seeking happiness themselves, I guess I should say. And that, that was part of my formative experience. Um, I was always a more quantitatively uh, skilled person than qualitatively skilled person, so I was drawn to neuroscience. And um, I, my first job out of out of college was to work in a lab uh, that was studying the neural underpinnings of of IQ. So, so mm. we would give people an IQ test, and then we would measure their brain, and we were trying to see if there were certain patterns of brain activation that systematically predicted IQ. Um, while we did see that, I, in the position of administering the IQ tests, really became clear to me that people's emotional state walking in the door was having an influence on their performance, mm -hmm. yet that was not part of anything we were trying to measure or control for. So I got really interested in how emotions affected thinking and, and decision-making and performance and uh, I came to UC Berkeley to do my PhD with a professor who was an expert in the neurology of the orbital frontal cortex, which is a territory in your brain that basically synthesizes emotional information with higher cognitive thinking. And um, from there, uh, I, it was very easy to study, for example, how um, aversive states like fear or um, uh, uh, kind of uh, disgust in and you can elicit those quite easy, easily in the laboratory, sure. right? Play loud sounds, show awful pictures. Um, eliciting the positive states is a little bit harder. But after doing several years of research looking at how these aversive states influence thinking, I just uh, got really interested in uh, the pro-social space. So how, where, what are these emotions that orient us towards the welfare of others have to do with how we think and feel? And that ended up being kind of like the foundation of human happiness, right? How much yeah. we listen to and tap into and utilize and leverage our innate pro-social drives and motivations and states uh, is a predictor of how happy we're going to be in life. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's the nutshell version. I, I just got really very interested cool. in pro-sociality. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so at the Science Center, what are the main areas that you focus on to share the message or spread the message about happiness and the science behind it? Yeah, well, so the Greater Good Science Center, basically our, one of our core roles is to track the cutting-edge science and try to bring research-tested insights about the power of social connection and kindness and our sense of belonging in a community to public awareness. So we read a, a, a journal article that uh, is really difficult to parse if you haven't, you know, spent eight years doing PhD work sure. <laughs> and, and, we, and we write an article that says, hey, you know what this study shows is that actually generosity is something that activates reward circuits in the brain. We might have this idea that being generous is sort of obligatory and that it's like a tax of sorts that, that we, we kind of must do it and it's a loss. Um, but actually, when you look at the brain, uh, what happens when people are given the opportunity to cooperate and be generous is the very same circuits that respond to pleasurable stimuli like uh, chocolate or, um, or perhaps winning a, a, a big money award. Um, those get activated when we're kind to each other. So again, this basic science information about how our bodies and our brains work in relationship to our emotions and our thoughts and beliefs about our emotions and happiness is, is what the Greater Good Science Center is trying to um, offer to, to the world. Um, and and, and uh, in a funny way, we didn't originally emphasize happiness as a, as a basic idea. It was only through our efforts to 
kind of have meet a popular audience in conversation because you can say till you're blue in the face, hey, it's really great to be forgiving. It's really great to be generous or to practice gratitude. And and until somebody feels like, well, what's it, you know, there's something in this that's going to make my life better, right? It's mm -hmm. not just about me going out and trying to be a better person and adding more tasks to my list, my never ending list. Exactly. Uh, how can I be, uh, how can I have the best life that, that I'm, that, that I can, I've, I really only know for sure about this one right now. So what can I do? And if we can make a compelling case that, Hey, research and, you know, scientific inquiry and systematic studies have revealed that you're going to get more in terms of a meaningful and happy life from uh, investing in your pro-social uh, affordances than investing in your competitive um, sort of self-serving affordances, um, that then we've done what we aim to do. Yeah, so it's really you plus me is better than you versus me. Uh, well, you know, here's a, that's a great question or, or statement, and, and I'll give you one funny little uh, anecdote. Well, actually, it's a scientific finding. Great. There's this great study uh, where somebody wanted to ask that question. It was a researcher named John Tower, and he used basketball. So he had kids come in, and he had them either play a game where they were all in one team trying to get as many baskets as possible, or play a game where they were divided into two different teams competing for who could get the most baskets or it was every every person for themselves everybody trying to get as many basketballs as they individually could and he was really interested in which of those was most motivating and rewarding uh, uh, as an experience and uh, it was the middle condition right it was the being on a team but competing with others that was the most uh, kind of enjoyable and inspiring and motivating of, of the three different conditions and so yeah I don't want to give the picture that you know competition doesn't have a place right competition is not a, a, a pejorative word and and cooperation doesn't always guarantee an I ideal solution but really it's funny, there's this word co-opetition that I keep coming across. Oh, I like days, that word. <laughs> that is about how we kind of try to synthesize our potential to compete, uh, to, to reach a higher goal, but in a way that cooperates amongst teams and also sort of between teams. Like we probably provide each other with information that, that we obtain in order to, you know, see, see who can find the solution to the problem that is actually vexing all of us. So, so yeah, I think I think it, there's a place for competition, absolutely. But perhaps our our pendulum has swung a little bit too far in the direction of of individualism and self-serving and competition, and not uh, leverage the the opportunities that really lie in investing in meaningful ways and our capacity to be cooperative and and pro-social. Yeah, I love that. So this makes me start to think about the workplace. I I recently did um, a workshop about called um, Recruit and Retain. Uh -huh. And I co-hosted it with a gal who runs um, a recruiting branding company, right? And so a we were getting feedback afterward. We had a lot of people, it was really fun. And I was more about the retaining side and collaboration in the workforce and cooperation, and gamification, all this stuff. So she, one of the gals uh, got back and said, you know, I love this, I love everything, but I can't get my CEO to invest in any of this stuff because it's all about profits and revenues. Yeah. So, so how do you take this into the workplace and really, you know, let a company grab onto that? Well, here's the fun thing. It's not even that hard. It just, uh, <laughs> the evidence is out there. There's tons of research now and maybe this is just the a nature or the nature of how long it takes for research findings to get from the laboratory to the boardroom. But there's tons of research that is revealing the profit uh, advantages of happiness at work. Mm -hmm. So what are the main uh, areas where companies have to pay a whole lot for retaining their uh, employees. Well, well, employees are, are stressed and miserable. They're going to be taking days off. When employees are, are unhappy, they're going to just leave, right? They're going to find sure. a better place to work. Um, employees who are more stressed and, and, and not happy with what they're doing are going to be less engaged, less productive. I mean, it, it, it's kind of like an obvious story 
but I, I understand that ultimately the, the, the C-level executives want to see the numbers. Well, the numbers are out there. I mean, there's tons of articles on Harvard Business Review about how important or what an, how, how important it is to support employee well-being. And by that, we can call it engagement. We can call it well-being. These are all kind of overlapping constructs. If you were to map them out in a Venn diagram, happiness is just one of them. Um, yeah. uh, having employees with a greater sense of purpose is tied to, again, greater engagement, more uh, likelihood that a, an employee is going to have a, a state of flow while they're at work. And that's just being totally immersed in what they're doing, uh, not feeling uh, interrupted by the, the, the more mediocre, irrelevant uh, notifications coming from your social media platforms, but instead really investing in, in solving a problem in a creative and innovative way uh, or just accomplishing a particular task. Um, there, you know, there, there's a lot of, of hard evidence that happiness at work is uh, an advantage to, to profitability and productivity. So yeah, I, yeah, I, I think there. you're right. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think it's quite gotten to the boardroom on a massive scale. But um, I was just reading about a CEO, Mark Douglas, of a company called Steelhouse, which is basically a marketing platform company that um, gives brands and agencies performance marketing kind of um, assessments basically uh -huh. about their campaigns. And so he, um, I, I just thought this was so great. So he is giving his employees a three day weekend every month uh -huh. and a $2,000 vacation bonus. And he uh -huh. has been quoted as saying he has almost no turnover. Yeah. Um, so some people would say, well, that's great. That's an action someone took. Well, that was an action he took to increase employee happiness. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and, and if I were to go even be a little more specific about it, I would say what, what he did was really support employee resilience. Um, stress is going to happen. I'm, I'm, I have no dream of, of creating a circumstance where there's no longer stress at work. There, there are important functions that stress plays, and, and there are time constraints that we all uh, work under, and, and stress sometimes you know, gets the job done. But chronic, you know, unrelenting uh, stress is, is what really is problematic. And um, what we know in terms of resilience is that when people detach from work, when they take the time to do something non-work related uh, that sort of captivates their creative zeal or challenges them in a, in a totally different way that allows them to have a kind of a, a, a second narrative about who they are and why they're important in the world, they're, they're better able to, to invest themselves in work when they're at work. So that three-day weekend once a month, you're giving people a little bit more time to detach and kind of recover from whatever's happening at work and assuming that some dimension of that is going to be, you know, stressful. Um, encouraging people to take vac vacations uh, by, by helping them uh, be able to afford them. Another just brilliant way of getting your people to uh, honor their needs as humans to be involved in something in addition to work. So work is very valuable. It's an incredibly important part of who we are, especially if we're lucky enough to be able to call our work our calling. But being a person who has multiple narratives about, again, why we're important in the world and what it means that we're here is something that is a, a real asset to our resilience as a human when things do uh, go sour. Yeah, I love that. So if, if you had to identify sort of keys to well-being and, and getting up that ladder, I just, I keep thinking of this ladder, you know, up, up the, the ladder of happiness, and it's okay to not always be at the top. Um, what are sort of the core key elements to that sense of well-being? Yeah, so as a, as a person, a human being, I have three main keys that I tend to focus on. And the first one is being somebody who easily and readily experiences positive emotions when things are going well. 
right? When, when, when life is good, when life is okay, when you're comfortable, when you have enough uh, access to food and warmth, um, and your ability to smile uh, is, is really important. The second is your resilience. And this is an idea I mentioned a moment ago. So uh, your ability to embrace life's difficult moments, but recover from them gracefully, largely through connecting with your support network through um, if it's again if it's if it's anger uh, how, how can you band together with others who are concerned about the same injustice as you and 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 engage in a meaningful action or behavior that that that, that confronts that unfair situation in a way that makes you feel like you're making a meaningful contribution to to humanity or the or the world around you so so resilience really being able to to leverage the difficult moments for towards growth and meaning, uh, rather than um, sort of fall into a you know extended uh, state of, of perpetual despair or stress or or uh, anger or fear or whatever we want to whatever more difficult state we we are going to experience, and then the third is connection, right? Our our ability to form long term supportive meaningful bonds with others, and and I don't mean quality quantity here. I mean quality. Uh, mm -hmm. There are many people who self identify as introverts. Uh, they don't like to go out to crowded places and try to make small talk with lots of new people who they don't know. That is fine. This is not what is the secret to happiness. But your ability to have a relationship with at least one person who you can count on and turn to when things are not going well for you and also who you know is going to turn to you, who's going to reach out to you and seek support in their difficult moments. These, uh, that's part of what it means to, to be connected. And, and to me, in my reading of, of the literature on happiness and what it means to be a happy person, these are the three most important uh, sort of principles. Mm -hmm. I love all those. Are there certain things people can do on a on maybe a daily or weekly basis that can help them soothe themselves into that um, more more of an ease or more yeah. of a happy state of mind? Well, fortunately, um, that's a, a question for which there is an abundance of, of opportunity. Um, we at the Greater Good Science Center have a, a companion website, website called ggia.berkeley.edu. And GGIA is an acronym for Greater Good in Action. And basically what it is is a repository or library of different actions, behaviors, exercises that people can engage in that are focused on building things like your sense of kindness or connection or compassion or empathy, all these fundamental skills and characteristics that contribute to your strength as a, as a pro-social person. Um, so I can, I can draw some of the most simple ones that, again, these are not things we made up. These are things that we pulled out of research studies where scientists, you know, assigned people to one group and had them do this activity and compared it to people assigned to another group where, where they did uh, a different activity that was considered a control. So for the, let, let's start with what, what you might do to more readily and easily experience positive emotions. Uh, Geez, simplest activity is called three good things. And it's, it's an exercise in optimism or just reflecting, filling your mind with that which is good in, in your daily life. So you might write down for seven days at the end of the day, just take five minutes to write down three things that happened that day that were good. And, you know, give yourself three or four sentences. Who was there? Why did it, you know, what, what, was, your, what was your experience? What happened in your body? Um, how did it make you feel? And, and, and if you do that for a week, you're really just beginning to shift your awareness to focus on and easily remember those moments in your day that are positive, that feel good, that make you uh, think of yourself uh, more as a happy person. Uh, resilience, probably the biggest space of opportunity is uh, around self-awareness or practices that build skills of contemplation or what many refer to as mindfulness. So can you spend a few minutes each day 
breathing and paying attention just to the experience of air going in and out of your nose or mouth while you're breathing. Uh, trying to notice the thoughts that come and go in your mind, but not sort of plan or move forward with some uh, more elaborate process that is related to those thoughts. Instead, just really uh, calm your nervous system by breathing and paying attention to your breath. Uh, even more specifically, while you're breathing and paying attention, breathe out more slowly than you breathe in. What we know is that this engages the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the key calming influence on your heart rate in, in any moment of your day. So you can kind of strengthen that by, by practicing sorts of contemplative or self-awareness or mindfulness types of exercises to develop more resilience. And connection, my favorite exercise is gratitude. Uh, mm. I like gratitude because it's easy. Uh, most people understand what it means. Most people already think it's great and, and something they consider a virtue that they aspire to. What we know is that while people tend to think that, they also tend to think that gratitude is precipitously declining in civilization or in society. And what that means is that uh, while we all may still feel it in our hearts and think it's valuable, we're, we're getting out of the practice of expressing it to one another. If we mm -hmm. think everybody else is not feeling it, we're the only ones feeling it, but everybody feels that way, there's sort of an, a mathematical impossibility there. What it means, again, is that we're just not, get, we're not saying it, and we're not saying it in a way that is compelling or impactful. So uh, I often uh, I encourage people or walk people through an exercise in, in saying thank you in, in a way that will really have impact, and that is to say it to people, right? Try to, try to make your gratitude about another person and their role in, in the good things that have happened in your life. It's, it's a little bit more powerful than being thankful for your new car or your iPhone or your you know, extravagant privilege as a person. You can say thank you to another person. Uh, when you do it, make sure that you explain what it is they did that was good for you. Make sure that you acknowledge the effort that they put into whatever it is that they did that led to a goodness for you. And then also explain how and why it led to goodness for you. These things, acknowledging the effort, naming the action, and naming the actual impact, these are ways that we know scientifically boost or emphasize the good feelings that the person being thanked has and sort of feed into this um, kind of uh, dynamic of reciprocity that, that gratitude tends to build between people. Yeah. So yeah, so there's three examples, but again, there's probably over 50 of them now on the GGIA website that you could look, look, look at and, uh, and ex explore for your own, uh, your own edification. Yeah, I love that too. So people can go there and find lots of things they can do, journaling maybe. But um, I, I was just thinking on the gratitude. Sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I, you know, I'm grateful for this, but they kind of want something in return. So it's almost like conditional gratitude versus unconditional how how does someone get out of the conditional it's, it's almost like you go for coffee right uh -huh. so someone buys you coffee and you're like oh it's so nice of them to buy me coffee now I have to buy them coffee yeah yeah um so at that the way the way you're describing gratitude is it has sort of become transactional rather than heartfelt um and I think we all intuitively know the difference between a, a transactional kind of uh interaction and one right. that really just feels like it's about appreciating a person not appreciating that they you know were willing to drop 350 for your latte right um <laughs> you know i think it, it there there's there's always boundaries to the potential for any of the practices or, or principles or constructs to be useful, uh, and uh, I'm wary of the possibility that somebody says, "Well, you think gratitude is so great? Do you think it's good for people in, you know, codependent relationships to be grateful for each other when they're actually harming each other somehow?" Well, no, I definitely don't. Um, I wouldn't advocate gratitude across the board in every circumstance, and particularly circumstances that are imbalanced or harmful to begin with. There is no place for gratitude. So, uh, I mean, I, I can only say that um, 
to the extent that we try to avoid the transactional framing of our relationships with others, um, we will get more out of uh, expressing and sharing gratitude with them. Gratitude tends to actually kind of offset that transactional framing. Mm-hmm. The workplace is a place where people tend not to express gratitude, and oftentimes they'll say they don't because they don't need to. Like a boss might say, I don't need to thank my employees. I pay them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I thank them. But in fact, paying somebody isn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't accomplish the same thing that, that thanking them does. And in fact, when you thank them, the, uh, the kinds of dynamics that can come from thinking in transactional, purely transactional ways can, can be diminished. Yeah. Emiliana, this is such great information. I know our listeners are going to go right to that site. And tell me the, the URL one more time. It's uh, well, so greater good at berkeley.edu is our main website. If you'd like to read articles or see kind of the latest science on how important it is to to um, feel socially connected, to be kind day in and day out, and to have your sense of kind of meaningful belonging, that's where that, that's the greater good at berkeley.edu um, website. And then our companion site is ggia.berkeley.edu. And I'm just going to share a couple others. One is we have a podcast called The Science of Happiness. You can just search for it on iTunes. And then two, I teach and have been teaching for the last five years a course on the edX platform, edx.org, called The Science of Happiness, which really goes into greater depth on all of the topics that you and I have been discussing for the last few minutes together, Jody. So there's there's a couple places people can go and we try to offer different products so that people with different interests and different entry points can find something that that suits them. I love it. And you, I know, I mean, when I saw you, your smile fills the room. And so you just exude happiness, Emiliana, every time you walk in a room. And so I'm sure that's inspiring too. I love how you spoke about smiling in the very beginning. Oh, good. Well, thank you. Yeah. So thank you so much for being on Masogi Method. And for all our listeners, I'm your host, Jody B. Miller, and we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.125%, APR 4.22%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. 8.88% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 33. And now, an ad from Mom. Here I go. Bundling home and auto with Progressive can save you money on your car insurance. No kidding. Oh, all right. I'm sorry. I added that last part in. You can edit that out, right? Or you can keep it in if you like. I mean, my opinion is I I think it's good. I think other people my age would like it. Very relatable. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations.